welcome to Making Tech Better, Made Tech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. For us, that means empowering your teams to collaborate compassionately on creating high-quality software that delivers value quickly to the people that really matter, the users. My name is Claire Sudbury and my pronouns are she and her. I've been a software engineer for 21 years. I do a lot of speaking and writing on the topic of software delivery, and I'm a lead engineer with Made Tech. The public, that is to say the not-for-profit sector in the UK, has been hit by repeated funding cuts for years. But the secret weapon that it has is the government digital service, which has led to ongoing digital transformations across the public sector. It's more important than ever to understand how public digital services are organised and funded. So on the 17th of February 2021, I spoke to Dave Rogers. He's now an independent consultant, but he originally worked with the iconic government digital services team. So it's great to have Dave on the podcast. He knows a lot about public digital services and he has passionate opinions, all of which are wrapped up under what Dave refers to as toxic technology. Hello, Dave. Hi. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. So, Dave, I had a few sources for a bio for you, and I'm just going to kind of ask you about the headline elements. So uh, I gather from Twitter that your pronouns are he and him. Is that correct? That's right. Fantastic. And you are an independent consultant, part of the Public Digital HQ Network. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I kind of operate as a kind of independent consultant. So I I work directly with some clients providing a range of different services, usually kind of advice, uh, coaching, or I might run workshops or training, that kind of thing. And then Public Digital HQ is an organization I work with called Public Digital. And they're a new consultancy. We work across the world. The the kind of consultancy I do is trying to be um, something that focuses on my own lived experience. And the kind of work I do with with my clients is I kind of talk to them about what they're trying to achieve. And then I draw upon that experience to try and advise them about uh, ways in which they might be able to improve, different approaches or techniques they might use, areas where they might want to kind of link up with other people in the network so I kind of help help join them up with other organizations whether it's kind of peers I do a lot of work in the public sector so that's kind of linking up different people in the public sector and then also kind of getting into the kind of ideas space so uh, I do a lot of writing and I try to kind of capture those ideas in writing and then use those ideas when I work with different organizations. Okay And Dave, you were previously CTO, um, stroke head of digital at the Ministry of Justice, and also a member of the government digital service, the GDS transformation team, which I think is is fascinating. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, So in 2013, I joined GDS. Uh, GDS was pretty young then, but it it had already found its feet. You know, gov.uk was a thing and I was starting to look more outward across government and think, what can we do with what we've done with really kind of impactful products like gov.uk, but take the same principles 
ways of thinking, ways of working, and get that to kind of have a bigger impact right across government. Mm-hmm. Um, I got sent over to the Ministry of Justice and said, right, you're going to work on four initiatives over there, four digital services, touching on different parts of justice, whether it's like legal aid, Office of the Public Guardian, uh, the court service. And we were doing that with multidisciplinary teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were making software, we were using user-centered design. And a lot of this stuff was pretty new at the Ministry of Justice and pretty new in government. And we, over several years there, we kind of built a team that got kind of bigger and bigger and is the kind of modern um, justice digital team that you see today. Yeah. Uh, so it's quite a interesting journey. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. So the first question I ask everybody after we've talked about who they are is who in this industry are you inspired by? So I had a bit of a think about this and I'm going to, I'm going to slightly cheat by choosing a category okay. uh, rather than an individual person because I'm inspired by lots and lots of people at different times. Yeah. So I think like, as, as you'll find out in the rest of the podcast, I'm really interested in systems. Mm-hmm. So I'm really inspired by people who are able to talk about systems that run a bit deeper than what I talk about, like systemic racism or systemic sexism, transphobia, those kind of topics. And they talk eloquently about them and they can take those systems apart and talk about them in our industry. Those are the people I'm really inspired by at the moment. Ah. And to give you an example of it, there's an ex-colleague called uh, Abisola Fatigan, who is somebody who just tweets about this every now and again, you know, also tweets about technology and a number of other things. And yeah, he's very, very eloquent and gets me to really think about this stuff. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to be talking about toxic technology. And I know that you've been writing a lot about it. You've written a lot about it on your website. So what do you mean by toxic technology? So I came up with the term because I was a little bit frustrated with another term that lots of people will be familiar with, which is legacy technology. So I kind of wanted a term that was intentionally negative. Mm. It was saying, right, there is this thing about technology that's quite toxic that we don't want and it's unequivocal you can't argue we've inherited it from the past because you're specifically describing the things you don't want so i kind of summarize it as a characterization of technology by its unintended flaws okay which actually means it's not just legacy technology that has all those negative characteristics it's also technology that you may have literally just created it just happens to have all these flaws that you did not intend whether that's kind of bad design bad architecture etc yeah. Okay. So can you give me some examples of some toxic technology? Yeah. So a good example, probably probably one of the most important ones, I think, is technology that's very hard to change. So if you work in an organization that's been around a few years, you will inevitably come across a piece of technology that has become notoriously hard to change. So you might go in and you want to add a new feature and it, it just takes a very long time. As you work on that system, you get all these unintended consequences. So you try to add the feature and something else breaks, Mm. or you try to add the feature and the architecture is not designed for it. So if you walk into a typical kind of hundred year old organization, whether that's a government department or a bank that's been around for a really long time or or a retailer or something like that, you will see huge numbers of these systems. And you will see that the organization is really struggling to change as a result of the technology that it has. And that's that toxic effect through the lens of change. And so the impact of that is time and cost when you're trying to improve things and when you're trying to add new functionality, presumably. 
it's it's all the unintended flaws and all the consequences of those unintended flaws. So through that example I just gave, then yes, it would be time and cost of change. Yeah. But if you expand it out, it can start to touch upon uh, reputation mm-hmm. of an organization. If you're a commercial organization, it starts to hit your bottom line. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a public institution, then it starts to undermine trust in that institution. And you can see examples across the world where if the trust is undermined that is caused by that toxic technology it can actually have a really really powerful kind of impact yeah yeah and i guess so one of the phrases that really leapt out at me in one of your blog posts was you talked about there being a crisis in the sustainability of software tell me a little bit more about that yeah this is this is me kind of taking the kind of smallish idea of toxic technology and trying to kind of explore is there something really big going on as a result of this effect that we can all see so if you go and um you speak to your average software engineer network engineer architect or even people who kind of work higher they've seen this stuff and they've almost kind of normalized it you know the the rubbishness of technology is is just something we kind of like take for granted mm. If you start pushing it out into a kind of bigger picture, then I do think there's a potential for a crisis, if not a crisis already. Now, one of the examples I would give is, um, and we can add some links in maybe at the end of the podcast if needed. Absolutely, yeah. But there was this video I saw last year, which is, it's a piece of hospital software. And a video was produced by uh, the hospital that had used this product, so it's a commercial product. And that video was basically training people to accept how rubbish this technology was. (laughs) It was saying, we're about to roll out product X. It's going to be really hard to use. You're going to find it annoying. (laughs) What you need to do is you need to you need to kind of accept that this is just a natural part of introducing this product. And I found this fascinating that it actually became easier to produce a video that probably costs several thousand pounds to make you look at the production values it was more cost effective to produce a video telling people to accept the bad technology than to find the good technology yeah and hospitals are a really good example of where i think if you walk into the average hospital in probably almost any country and you ask to look at the technology systems that are used by doctors and nurses and hospital administrators it's awful yeah it's almost all awful it's outdated, it's poorly designed, it's probably insecure in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's extremely hard to maintain and change. Yet that's normalised. It's normalised within the healthcare industry. Whereas our baseline and the thing that we kind of presume is normal, which absolutely is not, is the type of technology that we get from where the money is. Yeah. So our smartphones and our music services and our TV services there's a lot of money in those industries and that's why that technology can appear quite so modern advanced but you look at areas where they're struggling for money like healthcare and justice technology's awful yeah yeah it's interesting i feel like it could be a bit of a tangent but it does make me think about how software change is painful for people often people find it very difficult to move from old clunky software to new software yeah yeah absolutely but I, but i think you are describing Uh, an impact of toxic technology, which is if the technology is poor, then 
you do start to see the accretion of workarounds and adaptations in users. Yes. And in worst cases, you actually see an inevitable increase in the workforce itself. Mm. So you actually got a codependency between a very bad piece of digital technology and a workforce that is considerably larger than it needs to be, Mm -hmm. which means that a digital transformation becomes not just a kind of passive modernization process where everything improves, that's where people start to lose their jobs as a result of something that is a net improvement for the organisation but could have been avoided. That is interesting. So how can we make software more sustainable? Making software more sustainable is going to be very hard because the things that are causing software to be unsustainable are a series of quite complex systemic causes. So you've got issues with organizational culture and management culture. You've got financial causes. You've got a lot of human bias, like the way that people think about things like delivery, estimation. So you've got these kind of series of systemic causes. Part of the problem I face is I struggle to convince leaders consistently that there's even a problem to be solved. Mm. We're in a situation where it's so normalized that you do certain things like if you're procuring a digital service you go through a certain set of stages partly because of the law partly because of presumed rules and constraints and it becomes very tricky and people don't want you to buy people they want you to buy an outcome and Mm. people get in a real pickle through that yet they go through that process time and time and time again and don't try to change it. Mm. The same is true of writing very large business cases or announcing large amounts of money for outputs. It happens time and time again. Leaders accept it, they normalize it, and they just fight through often these like horrific kind of program structures um, that don't achieve what they're set out to. Mm. So it's kind of, it surprises me how hard it is to convince people that this systemic problem exists and they should maybe have a go at fixing it. I'm really, really interested in the culture side that's driving this. And I've got really, really into the financial side of this. It's kind of maybe the two kind of most important systemic causes. Ah, okay. So let's talk a little bit about the culture side then. What do you see as being the problems with culture and what can be done about them? So on the culture side, I think there's a style of management which creates a really effective engine for creating more toxic technology it's called command and control Mm -hmm. uh, and it's where leaders try to exert a very kind of direct influence on what people and teams that they're responsible for do and that's something that a lot of people might be familiar with that term they'll certainly be familiar with things like micromanagement yeah so if as an individual or a team you're optimized in terms of what are the incentives within your organization If they are towards following the plan, then you're probably in a command and control situation. If you're incentivized towards outcomes and value, then you're in a more supportive culture. It's that idea that leaders are there to kind of serve the needs of the teams and the individuals that work in their area. And that's that's a real kind of flip of thinking. Yeah. And then I think the additional part of it is a real shift towards kind of outcomes over outputs. So the language of leaders will focus on the outcomes they want to see. Um, Sometimes that's described as like a mission-based approach. So a leader might say to a team, your mission is this. Mm -hmm. They're not really concerned with how they achieve that mission, but they clearly signal like what kind of outcomes are going to be 
positive for the wider organisation. So it's something that I've struggled with in the past is when you're talking about outcomes versus outputs, I kind of go a bit word blind and I think, but those two words are really similar. What is the difference? When is it an outcome and when is it an output? And I often need an example to kind of latch onto it and go, oh, yeah, of course, I do know the difference. That's an outcome. That's an output. So can, can you give me an example of an outcome versus an output? Yeah, uh, I think an example I'd use is one that's kind of inside quite a complex system, which is the criminal justice system. I was involved uh, at some point in a project where the intuition and the assumption of leaders was that they wanted to deliver a website that would help people go through the court process that they would face as a result of a speeding offence more effectively and more efficiently to reduce the pressure on the court system. So effectively to make the court system a a bit cheaper and a bit more efficient. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing they really wanted to achieve was they wanted to reduce pressure on the court system. That's the kind of, that's the outcome. Mm -hmm. They'd moved into the output space by suggesting that that would be achieved through effectively a website that would navigate people through that process quicker. In the process of researching that domain, we actually discovered that something that was upstream in the system, which was signposting better access to speed awareness courses, would have a downstream effect on the courts. I found that a really interesting example of where a simple content tweak on a letter could almost eliminate the need for a digital service downstream. Right, yeah. And that's that's what that kind of outcome-based leadership can get you, is it gets you the creativity to say... We don't really know what the solution to this problem is, but we're absolutely clear what we're trying to achieve is the end goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that I've seen in many different contexts, that it can really help to ask people, what are you actually trying to achieve? It also reminds me, there's a thing called the XY problem, which is where somebody comes to you and says, please, will you help me do this thing? And and you'll spend a long time helping them do this thing. And it's quite a complicated thing. Uh, and, and, and maybe you even fail because it's so hard. And then at the end of it, you say, why did you want me to help you do that thing? And they said, oh, because I was trying to achieve this. And you go, oh, but you could have achieved that by doing this other very simple thing and you've asked me to solve x when really you were trying to solve y and if you'd have told me you were trying to reach y i would have given you a much easier way of doing it absolutely absolutely and i think the reason why that culture produces so much toxic technology is you've got a lot of people pursuing these very specific outputs and having to deal with the contradiction of what they're learning and how it exposes the fact that maybe that technology should never have been built. Mm-hmm. Maybe that technology doesn't actually solve the problem. And it's almost like it, it creates a kind of um, situation where an organisation exhausts its very limited resources on the pursuit of the outputs it doesn't really need. Yeah, yeah. And, and you get half-finished technology, you get bad technology... got your attention let me tell you a bit about made tech after 21 years in the industry i'm pretty choosy about who i'll work for but there's lots to love about made tech we're software delivery experts with high technical standards we work exclusively with the public sector we have an open source employee handbook on github which i love we have unlimited annual leave But what I love most about MadeTech is the people. There's a real passion to make a difference and they really care for each other. 
Our Twitter handle is madetech, M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. And if you go to madetech.com slash resources slash books, you'll find that we have a couple of free books available, Modernizing Legacy Applications in the Public Sector and Building High-Performance Agile Teams. We're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the north of England via our Manchester office. You can find out more about that if you go to madetech.com slash careers. If you join our mailing list, you'll get extra podcast content as well as finding out more about MadeTech. You'll find a link in the description. Before the break, Dave and I were talking about the XY problem, which is where you can find yourself trying to solve Y when what you should really be doing is finding the solution to X. Another way of describing this is when you focus only on outputs, sometimes this means you can move blindly towards a predefined endpoint without questioning why. What are the financial causes of toxic technology? Yeah, this is the thread I've been pulling on uh, in this overall topic that's that's really kind of interested me because I've realised that perhaps this is where a lot of the easier solutions lie. So probably where it starts is I think people have a completely broken model of the relationship between money and technology. Yeah. It's very typical for like a financial professional, uh, say an accountant uh, or a CFO, to perceive technology in the same way that they might perceive other capital assets that they can buy. So that would be your tables and chairs, your office furniture, the buildings that, that you might buy to host your offices. They, they put technology into that category, which is a kind of false categorization because technology is much, much more like a service. Um, it's much, much more like a flow of money. Mm-hmm. It's kind of mirrors what, what's sometimes referred to as CapEx and OpEx, which is capital expenditure and operational expenditure in terms of accountancy. Now, those are perceived to be two, almost like two different flavors of money. Mm-hmm. The first flavor of money is intended to kind of result in things that have value that you can then point at that value like buying a car or or even building a car and then the opex is is the kind of service money what's happened in our industry is we're seeing this wave of a shift from capex to opex so back in perhaps the kind of like 1990s almost everything would have been about buying the laptops buying the data centers installing the networks um producing these very seemingly fixed kind of software like large-scale software construction projects you create the large thing and it's perceived to have enormous value Mm. what we're shifting to now is with effects like cloud microservices agile software development the massive kind of um, growth of the the SaaS market software as a service market Mm -hmm. almost everything starting to look like something that you rent like SaaS or something that you have to continuously improve and service and maintain and sustain. So there's this really interesting problem emerging where the the mainstream of financial thinking, I don't think, has got its head around this huge shift to a rental and flow-based economy that has been ushered in. And software is right at the the kind of vanguard of of that shift. 
What it's making me think of is the thing that you see a lot in all organisations, but in the public sector, the example of it is that, and it actually, I, I've seen it potentially be a problem with the GDS paradigm, that there's this idea that you've got alpha and beta and, and eventually you move to live. And each phase is funded. Somebody has a budget and says, here's the money for this bit. And what it can result in is that people never go to live, not because they're not ready to be live, but because they can see that if they go to live, the money will dry up. When you're building a new thing, yeah, there probably is a, an intensity of funding required. Software needs maintenance. It's a living beast that has to be fed and watered and, and looked after and you know you have to clip its toenails and do all sorts of things my analogies are all over the place now um. <laughs> well, my, my favorite one is gardening mm -hmm. um, toenails if you like but I quite like uh, gardening it's kind of uh, okay yeah so I think of you know if you're in an organization that's got a lot of software you've basically got a big garden mm -hmm. and you know if all the software developers just kind of packed up and went home for six months the garden would become hideously overgrown through the just through the passage of time mm. And I think it's people perceive software and digital technology as being much more kind of engineering like there's a solidity to it. Whereas I think it's organic nature is a much better capturing of what it is. If you connect the dots between some of the things we've been talking about, which is kind of the culture of empowerment, the need to do ongoing tending of software and the power of that flow of money. You can see that you've got this kind of sliding scale mm -hmm. and the sliding scale is like a, at one extreme, you've just got the absolute baseline of funding, sometimes called like keep the lights on or BAU. And that will likely mean that the services just degrade mm -hmm. uh, and everything becomes toxic. Mm. As you go up that sliding scale, you create more autonomy for the team, but you actually create less autonomy for strategic decision makers. So when you talk about there being more autonomy... Are you saying that typically the more money is being made available, the more autonomy people have in how they spend that money? Yeah, the easiest way I think to think about this dynamic is through the lens of teams. Mm -hmm. So with a lot of organisations I work with, the, one of the first observations I have for them is like you don't really have any teams. Teams only pop into existence when you provide some money and you get the emergence of this organisational structure that's only there because the money's there. Mm. Correspondingly, when the money runs out, that all just kind of disappears and there are a few people left holding whatever got created by that programme. So if you start to stabilise that and you start to say, well, actually, let's think differently. Let's assume that we're going to constantly want to change things. Why don't we have a larger core of teams? Mm -hmm. Why don't we have five teams for whatever it is that we're trying to do? Now, we can still decide what those teams do and what their priorities are and what their missions are. But what we don't question each year or each political cycle or spending cycle, we don't question their existence. We allow them to thrive as teams and create a culture where there's the kind of like the autonomy of existence, I guess. Like they've got the autonomy to know they're not going to lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. They're just there to do whatever is the most important priority for the organisation. Mm. And part of their job in that case could be deciding what their priorities are and what needs to be focused on and how they're going to focus their, their efforts and their time. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that is, I mean, that's always a fascinating dynamic that you, you hire talented, multidisciplinary people into institutions that are used to command and control. Mm. They start having ideas. They're like, oh, we could do this really, really awesome thing. Mm. It's actually very unnatural, particularly in, I mean, my, I'm most familiar with the UK civil service. It's very unnatural for a big idea to emerge from a multidisciplinary team and go up and catch the attention of a minister yeah, and be like, oh, okay, that's the thing we should do. Mm-hmm. The flow is designed to go almost exclusively the other way. Yeah, yeah. I actually was watching a fascinating talk by Janet Hughes the other day about that, about policy and how historically the way policy is managed within the UK public sector, and I'm guessing in a lot of other countries as well, is that policy just becomes a hand grenade that's just lobbed over a wall to a, a team of people who then have to deliver that policy but it's not a two-way street you know there's no communication it's just here we go we've come up with a new thing now you make it happen rather than there there, there being a dialogue and and like you say the people on the other side of the world being able to come up with good ideas which they're bound to have because they're at the coalface they're interacting with the users they're actually seeing the impact of policy yeah definitely it's it's that inspect adapt loop Mm. that is just an intrinsic part of agile Mm -hmm. expanded out to government yeah and said well actually if you inspect and adapt then that means that you get a feedback loop and you don't necessarily end up delivering the policy that you might have expected to have delivered in the first place yeah and another pattern that we see in the public sector in particular is this idea that somebody decides a new thing is needed and a pot of money is made available. So there is a budget that's put out to tender and people bid and say, yes, we can build this website for you. And already you have a problem because you've decided how much money you want to spend. And just as we were talking about before, you've basically created an output rather than an outcome. And now you're encouraging people to say, yes, we can do that thing for you and we will make it cost however much money it is that you think you've got to spend rather than saying, well, we don't really know at this point, not if we're working in an agile sense, exactly what you were talking about, having that feedback cycle. By going through this process of saying, this is the thing we want and this is the money we have available, you're already causing yourself problems because you're creating an environment that won't allow that flexibility. So my question is actually, because the public sector is is so wedded to that way of working, you know, it's it's just the way it's done. How do you affect change? So I think there are some interesting precedents about how this might be solved. There's a minister in New South Wales in Australia, a guy called Victor Dominello, and he's led this thing called the Digital Restart Fund. Now, what the Digital Restart Fund is, basically, it's going to be a specially designed vehicle for distributing money in much smaller amounts targeted towards digital interventions. And what we're going to do is we're going to create a proxy treasury that's much closer to digital strategy. So this was created and then people were able to draw down money probably in the order of like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to do individual initiatives. It breaks it down into smaller chunks and gets the decision making of where those chunks get spent closer to digital strategy. Mm -hmm. Where that would usually fall apart is in the process of agreeing the size of that digital restart fund in the process. Yeah. Because a treasury would usually say, well, you need to provide enough evidence to say that money is going to get spent effectively. It will take political will from political leaders to believe more deeply in a style of intervention or an outcome than they do in specific outputs. Mm -hmm. And to gain the money for achieving that, 
that's a really kind of macro scale example of it. What you see with the emergence of digital units in large organisations is the alternative version of that, where in effect, staff become a bulkhead of predictable spend. So if an organisation starts to employ five, then 10, then 20 teams of multidisciplinary people and they're full-time salary people, that gives you a change capacity that will cost you the same amount of money every year, Mm -hmm. but gives you incredible flexibility about where the focus of those teams goes. Yeah. Now that model is like completely normal in big tech. Yeah. So I think you start to see the clues if you piece it together. Mm. But in any given environment, it's going to be a bit of a fight and it will take political will or the will of leadership aligned to lots of different incentives to actually create a situation where that new model emerges. Mm. And I I suppose, um, do you see it as part of your role to just keep chipping away and and helping people to see that, you know, that that funding models are, are fundamentally broken? I do. Yeah, it's definitely like a bit of a personal mission to like chip away at this problem and, and see what I can do. Mm. Part of it is really, really valuable as a consultant. So if I if I go in and I speak to someone and they're like, I'm in the middle of this massive program, everything's kind of going wrong, nothing seems to make sense. If I just go in and with some degree of authority, explain to them that the entire system's rigged against them, <laughs> they really like that. Yeah. Because it, it's, it's for their own mental health, it's so relieving to know that the madness isn't just them doing a bad job. Yeah. Now, getting them to actually do something about it, that's a whole different thing. But getting people into a place where they feel better about the fact that everything's a bit broken mm. um, is a really good like icebreaker as as a consultant. Yeah. It's also I guess it's related to a, a fundamental principle of how to help your friends, which people often miss out on, is that sometimes your friend will come to you and complain about something or be upset about something. And for some people, and I used to be one of these people and I still have to curb this tendency, you feel like your role then is to suggest solutions and say, oh, well, have you tried this? What about this? Try doing this. And sometimes people really don't want that. They just want you to go, oh, that sounds awful. Poor you. Have a hug. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as a consultant, you can't just stop there. But but recognising when to give people sympathy and allow them to feel seen without feeling like they have to instantly do something can be can be really useful. Definitely. Okay, so something that I ask everybody is to tell me one thing about you that's true and one thing that's untrue. And then what we will do is we will allow subscribers to find out which one was the true one and which one was the untrue one. So uh, do you have something for me? Yes. So the first thing is that I'm the former world record holder for mattress dominoes. (laughs) Okay. And the second one is that I'm the former world record holder for mattress Jenga. No way. Oh, my God. So I have seen a video of Mattress Dominoes and it was I think it might have been in Japan. I'm not sure. It was somewhere in the Far East. Um, The one that I saw, I think each mattress had a person attached. I think there were people and mattresses that were dominoing, but it was a very, very funny thing to watch. Mattress Jenga is not something that I have. Oh, my God. I'm just trying to imagine it now, given that I also love to play Jenga. And uh, I'm trying to imagine trying to remove a mattress from a pile of mattresses. <laughs> I just think, are they full-sized mattresses? Just physically removing a mattress from a large pile of mattresses sounds like an extremely difficult thing. Yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, you, you might be onto some clues here as to which one's true and which one's false. 
<laughs> but the idea that you could be a former record holder in either of those things is 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 mind-boggling. Brilliant. So um, let's end on a high. What is the best thing that's happened to you in the last month or so? It can be either work-related or non-work-related. I think it's when I found out that my dad got vaccinated because uh, he volunteers with Help the Aged. And Aww. it was just like, it was such a nice feeling that my yeah. dad got vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. My parents got vaccinated uh, a couple of weeks ago and it was, uh, it was very good news. OK, so, Dave, where can people find you? And do you have anything coming up that you'd like to plug? Uh, well, they're kind of both the same thing. So at DaveROG.com is, is my website. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing I want to plug is that I'm always writing on there. And there's a sign up link on the front page. And you can get on my MailChimp distribution list and, and see everything, all the new things that I'm writing. Last year, I wrote a book and then didn't have the guts to publish it. So I'm effectively now serializing it as a bunch of blog posts, um, which actually makes the task of editing it a whole lot more manageable interesting so thank you so much for for speaking to me today dave and uh, i'm sure we will meet again at some public sector related event at some point so thank you thanks for having me on it's been awesome as always to help you digest what you've just heard i'm going to attempt to summarize it We've been talking about toxic technology, which is Dave's deliberately negative term to describe the bad bits of legacy technology. And not even just legacy technology, but also technology you've only just created. What he's trying to describe here are the unintentional flaws, such as outdated technology, poorly designed, insecure, and the consequence of those flaws. For instance, software that's hard to change, which results in having to spend extra time and extra money, which can hit your reputation, can hit trust, and can hit the bottom line of your organizations and have a powerful negative impact. We talked about a crisis in the sustainability of software and what happens when people start taking rubbish technology for granted. We talked about the complex systemic causes of this about issues with organisational culture and management culture. For instance, when human bias creeps into processes via things like delivery estimation, and when top-down command and control management styles prevent innovation, when instead you could be focusing on and incentivising towards outcomes and value. We talked about the financial causes of toxic technology and about the completely broken model in the UK public sector at any rate of the relationship between money and technology. There's been a shift in software from a model of capital expenditure to one of operational expenditure. There's been a huge shift to a rental and flow-based economy. Software maintenance is like gardening. It needs constant funding and attention. So instead of teams popping in and out of existence when funding appears, it would be better if we could leave core teams in place. And instead of those teams only ever being told what to do by policymakers in a one-way stream, allow them some agency in deciding what needs to be done. We talked about finding different funding models in the public sector. For instance, the Digital Restart Fund in New South Wales in Australia. If you want to know more about all of this, please do look Dave up. There'll be links in the description. It was great to speak to Dave, but the podcast isn't over yet. Stick around for some extra content. Mm
every other episode, this last short segment will be devoted to story time. Storytelling is useful for teaching, for unlocking empathy, and for creating a sense of shared connection and trust in your teams. I love telling stories to both children and adults. I'm actually a lapsed member of the UK Society for Storytelling. So the plan is that I'm going to be using stories to illustrate various points about effective software development. For this episode, I thought I'd tell the story of the millennium. Not the Y2K bug, but the New Year's Eve party. So to set the scene, I live in Manchester, close to the city centre. New Year's Eve in the city can be fun, but it can also be a pain. Nobody can agree on where they're going to go. You can't get home afterwards because there are no buses and you can't find a taxi. And this was going to be the big one. This was the millennium. So we thought, why don't we host a party? And then instantly thought, no, that's a crazy idea. Nobody will turn up. We'll end up on our own in a house on New Year's Eve at the millennium. But then we thought, OK, how about if we send invites out in advance? So six months in advance, we encourage people to commit and to give us money to seal the deal. Not that we were trying to make a profit, just to fund the party. And then there was the anxious wait for replies. But it worked. People did reply and they did send us money and they did promise to turn up, which was great. But then everybody wanted to get involved. So everybody wanted to take control over particular rooms and help with the music. And of course, you'd think that would be a good thing, but I'm a bit of a control freak and it's my house. And to be honest, there was a bit of discomfort there. But then there was the joy of letting go and allowing this to happen. People took over particular rooms and took charge of the decor. People arranged music and food and drink and loads of extra little special details just to really make it a special occasion. Well, that was the plan. But what actually happened? Did anybody even turn up? New Year's Eve, there we were in an empty house with all of this amazing decor and all of this food and drink lined up, but not at all sure knowing our friends that they wouldn't suddenly decide to do something else at the last minute. So we waited and we waited and then the doorbell went and then the doorbell went again and it was amazing. And it wasn't just our party it was everybody's party. There were happy faces everywhere. There were so many people thanking us for having put it on. People didn't want to leave. It lasted a lot longer than we thought it would. And a group of friends became a community. And we all kept reminding each other of how much we cared about each other. And the best thing was that it wasn't stressful because quite often when you host a party, you don't get to enjoy it like you do when you attend a party. But because it wasn't just me putting it together, it wasn't stressful. I could relax. I could enjoy it. So what's the moral of this? I learned a really strong lesson from that, which is that shared ownership makes a massive difference to an outcome. If you allow and encourage your teams to seize control of their ways of working, of their outcomes and their outputs, then everybody cares and the result is so much better. Everybody's energetic, everybody's motivated. And instead of having to be in control, it's much less stressful and you can relax. Working in the public sector means that at MakeTech, we really care about making a difference. So for this final Making Life Better segment, myself and my colleagues will be sharing suggestions for small things we can do to make the world a better place. 
For this episode, I'm returning to the book Change the World for a Fiver, which was created as part of the Community Links project, We Are What We Do, and was recommended by my colleague, Adam Friday. I'm going to read directly from the book. This item is titled Learning First Aid is Child's Play. It only takes two hours to learn how to save a life. What else are you going to do in that time that's going to make such a difference? Watch stars in their eyes twice over? And let's face it, saving someone's life is cool. In fact, it's about as cool as you can possibly get. And if you do learn this skill, you might like to know that the person you help is statistically unlikely to be a stranger. They're more likely to be a friend or relative. Imagine saving your best friend's life. In the UK, there's a fantastic organisation called St John's Ambulance. There'll be a link in the description and they run really great courses in how to do first aid. And that's the end of another episode. You can find me on Twitter at Claire Sudbury, which might not be spelt the way that you think. There's no I in Claire and Sudbury is spelt the same way as surgery with E-R-Y at the end. I've got a few talks coming up. If you look at the events page on my Medium blog, which is linked to from my Twitter profile, you'll find all the details there. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Making Tech Bet 2. That's Making T-E-C-H-B-E-T-T-2. Do come and say hello. Give us your feedback. Give us any contributions you have for future episodes or just have a chat with us. Thank you to Rose for editing and thank you to Richard Murray for the music. You'll find a link in the description. Special mentions go to Tito Saryanandia, Chasey Davis Wrigley and Rubber Duck Killer, all of whom left us reviews in the Apple Podcast app. We're really keen to get those. We really want to know what you thought. I'm so tempted to read them all out. I won't, but I will quote from Tito's review. He says, you'll want to work with every single person you hear from, which is a really good point. I really would love to work with all the people that I've interviewed. Also in the description is a link for subscribing for extra content. We'll be releasing new episodes every fortnight. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.